Brad Hudson grew up on a dairy farm in New Hampshire and worked the farm from the time he was big enough to help out, six, seven years old. When his father retired, Rod ran his own operation on his dad's property and did just fine until the mid-1980s when something strange started to happen with the cows. A series of strange things started to happen, actually, beginning with their hooves. That was the, the first thing. Cows' feet don't normally have to be tr- uh, trimmed only about once a year, possibly twice, and I was having to trim them three and four times a year. You mean just trim their hooves? Right. If they got sore feet, they don't walk around like they should. They, they won't go and eat like they should. Do they give as much milk? No, no. The, the production was, was low all the time. A healthy cow would give Rod 75 to 90 pounds of milk a day. These cows were averaging 40 at best. It's hard to even cover expenses. The cows developed other problems. They had trouble conceiving. They started losing weight. They began to get sick. Oh, I'd, I'd have a veterinary veterinarian about every six weeks or something like that. Is that pretty expensive? It's very expensive. And uh, you could spend $100 per cow pretty quick. And uh, all I'd get out of them is they didn't know what was the matter with them, so... They tried medicines, they changed the cow's feed, they changed it again, they replaced the cows with new cows. And this went on month after month, year after year, for a decade and a half. And Rod was not a novice. He was an experienced dairy farmer who'd been through a lot, nearly 50 years old, when the troubles began. He tried this, he tried that, all the time, watching himself slowly go broke. Well, just nobody had any answers. make suggestions and we'd try to do what was suggested to us and uh, nothing seemed to work for us at all. It just must have made you feel so crazy. Well, I blamed it onto myself as much as anything. (laughs) I kind of tried to accept the fact that I wasn't doing something right and I as I say, no matter what I did, it, it didn't work. So. The first time I talked to Rod, a few months back, someone that I'm close to was having all sorts of medical problems and going through tests and CAT scans and spinal taps and more CAT scans. And the doctors couldn't figure out what was causing the problems. And in the absence of information, she did what Rod did. She blamed herself. And I think this happens a lot. I think that when you have nothing to go on, you fill the vacuum with anything that you have at hand, with any superstitions that you can think of, with everything that you think you could have done wrong. Before something has a name, it could be anything, you know? And that period before you know the truth, that period is often worse than the truth that you find out. Today in our program, we bring you stories about that eerie, unsettling period before something has a name. And stories about how things change once things do have a name. In Rod's case, it turned out that high-voltage power lines that crossed his property were leaking current into the ground. When it was wet outside, moisture would carry the electricity. Not much electricity, just 35 watts or so. Enough for, like, a vibration sort of feeling. Through the ground and into the barn and up into the cow's drinking trough. The cow was standing there with bare feet in a wet spot. And they go to drink the water, and, and because this electricity was getting into the water, why, they'd get a shock as they were drinking. 
And what would that do? Well, instead of putting their head down into the water and drinking it, they, they were just lapping at it like a dog laps water. And they just wouldn't take in that much. They were afraid they were going to get a shock when they got a drink. The cows were dehydrated, getting only about a third of the water they were supposed to get. And that explained all of their other problems. After nearly 15 years of uncertainty, it was a relief to finally know the answer. But Rod Hudson was so heavily in debt, there was no way to recoup fast enough, and he lost the farm. At 65, he now has a new job. Well, at the present time, I'm, I'm drive, driving for Thomas Transportation out of Keene. That's an airport shuttle service. And I'm putting in somewhere around 50 to 60 hours a week. And you do the early morning? I do basically early morning runs. Starting around when? Generally, it's around three or half past. So even earlier than you'd have to get up to milk cows? Well, just about the same time. Oh, really? Yeah, because that's about the time that I normally got up. So. And so what do you think of that job? I love it. You do? I really do. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, this is American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, before it had a name, our program in four acts today, Act 1, Mr. Boder Vanishes. In that act, the very first recordings of Holocaust survivors made just after the war, before the Holocaust was even called the Holocaust, and very different from other Holocaust survivor interviews because of that. Forgotten for decades, never before broadcast, those tapes here today on our program and the story of the man who collected them. Act two, of course I remember your name. In that act, the difference between those we know and those whose names we know. Act three, a bad day for plates. The story of four kids who thought that the mother was just, just mean. And then they found out that there was a different name for it completely, rewriting everything they ever knew about her. Act four, you call that love? Stay with us. Act one, Mr. Boder vanishes. This is the story of a man named David Boder who started to investigate the Holocaust before it was known as the Holocaust. And because of that, his research was different and treated differently by the world than investigations done later. Carl Marziali tells the story. In 1946, David Boder went to Europe to interview survivors of Nazi concentration camps, specifically to record their stories in their own voices. At the time, this was a new idea. So new, he was the only one who went. What he got were the first oral histories of Holocaust survivors before it was even called the Holocaust. Even if you've heard other survivor accounts, there's something different about these interviews. Over and over, people refer to names that have since taken on a bigger significance, but without knowing the bigger significance. George Kaldor, a survivor from Hungary, tells Boder that when he first arrived at the camp, he walked past the gate with the words, work sets man free, and met an SS chief physician whose name Boder didn't recognize and misspelled on the transcript as Wengele. Boder typed question marks next to the name. When a French woman named Nellie Bundy mentions the camp she was sent to, it's not enough for her to say the names Birkenau and Auschwitz for Boder to know what she's talking about. Birkenau is some, some kilometers from Auschwitz. And Auschwitz is where? In East Upper Silesia. In East Upper Silesia. Who has it now? Poland. 
Poland yeah. right now. Yeah. So that means she tells Border that they marched from Auschwitz to Birkenau, and on the way, the guards shot the stragglers. A familiar scene to anyone who's seen a movie or read a book about the Holocaust, but surprising and new to Border. But were they shooting them, like sentenced people, putting them to the wall? Oh no, no, she fell down Oh no, she's saying. She fell down somewhere and he just shot at her. That was all. All the route was bordered with corpses, you see. And uh, whose corpses were that? Well, there were men who had been leaving before us yes. and who had been shot like that. There were men who had been led before us and had been shot like that. Maybe it's a kind of dramatic irony, the ratio of our own awareness to the speaker's lack of it. Maybe it's the way people talk when they barely know what's happened to them before analysis and judgment show up to put everything in its place. The people in the camps have been cut off from almost all news reports for years, so all they can talk about is what happened to them. They have no bigger picture. When Nellie Bundy tries to get refuge with the U.S. Army after the German surrender, she goes to a checkpoint and talks to an American guard. I came to see them and uh, I spoke English and asked him if I could get over. What who are you? When the guard asks her who she is, she can't just say a Holocaust survivor. The idea doesn't exist for her or the guard. So instead, she makes up a term for herself. I'm a French political prisoner, she says. The guard says he doesn't have any instructions for political prisoners and goes to ask his captain. The captain came back and told me I'm extremely sorry for you, but so far I haven't got any instructions for political prisoners, just for prisoners of war. The captain comes back and tells her, I'm extremely sorry, but so far I haven't got any instructions for political prisoners just for prisoners of war, and turns her away. Often in the recordings, you get the sense of two worlds meeting for the first time and trying to figure each other out. The survivors and the people they come across just don't speak the same language. This is very different from later interviews with survivors after a common language had developed. So we had to go on the so-called death march. You had to keep up because if you fell down, they shot you. These are interviews of survivors made after 1988 and released in a box set called Voices of the Shoah. This one describes the same experience Nelly Bundy had, but now it has a name, the death march. We had to march, so my sister is older. She gave me her shoes. It was January 1945. It was so slippery. I called, no food, nothing, that if you slipped, you couldn't get up. There was no way in heaven you could get up. At the beginning, they shot you right on the spot. But after the while, why waste the bullet? Let them freeze to death. That's why they called the death march. And whose corpses you think were they? They were, they were internal people. Border recorded 109 interviews over two months. He cut an unlikely figure, an older man in goatee and glasses, wearing a blazer and tie in the middle of summer, burdened by 60 pounds of primitive recording equipment and a bad heart. Because he did this work before the Holocaust had a name, and everything that comes with a name, recognition, context, a common language, he had trouble getting funded, 
His work was never truly completed. His tapes were lost for decades, and he died in obscurity. I first came across Boder's name in 1998. I was on a freelance assignment at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago when a professor I knew showed me a copy of a campus magazine from 1947. He'd found it in somebody's attic, started flipping through it, and on page 18 found an article by David P. Boder, a psychology professor at IIT. Boder's article was about his recent expedition to Europe, and it struck me as odd for a couple of reasons. I'd never heard of Boder, even though, as it turns out, he was the first person ever to record Holocaust victims. And the tone was odd. His writing was clear, informative, and totally devoid of personal content. It seemed strange that a Jewish man who had come face to face with the attempted extinction of his people would title his article, The Displaced People of Europe, Preliminary Notes on a Psychological and Anthropological Study. I decided to find out what I could about David Boder. In the 1930s and 40s, he was a minor public figure, the kind of professor who knew how to get his name in print. He showed up in Time magazine with some invention called the adjective-verb quotient. He made the papers with his analysis of children's letters to Santa Claus and with an experiment where he wired his students with sensors and charted their reactions to scary movies. But at some point in the mid-40s, his research shifted focus and took on an urgent tone. By 1945, he was trying to get a visa for Europe and furiously writing grant proposals to fund a project there. There were newsreel and newspaper accounts of what had happened in the camps, but Boder was proposing to interview survivors in their own languages. He spoke at least seven himself, and in their own words. Boder got rejection letters from a who's who of post-war philanthropy. The American Jewish Conference, the Guggenheim Foundation, the B'nai B'rith, the federal government. He kept going, and it wasn't clear to me what was driving him. It seemed to be more than scholarly interest. But among the grant applications, newspaper clippings, boxes and boxes of archival papers, there was not a single personal artifact. No reflections, no memoirs, not one personal note in his travel diary. Boder died 40 years ago, and his only daughter, Elena, died childless in 1995. To learn more, Actually, to learn anything about Boder's private self, I turned to Sylvia Jericho, a lifelong family friend and a colleague of Boder's daughter, Elena. According to Sylvia, Boder in person was a lot like Boder in print. He'd gone a great length about psychology or the works of Chekhov. But I don't remember his ever talking about himself in the world. Why do you think that was? Well, I think, I think it reflects... Uh, Tra tragedy in his life, and that he uh, had abandoned uh, his early life. And I think there was a schism between him and his early life. Here are some parts of his early life that Boder might have been trying to abandon. He had married in Russia when he was 20 years old and divorced two years later. I talked to the family historian in Israel, who says that Boder converted to Christianity to get ahead, and that this was the reason his wife left him. Boder fled Russia in 1919 after the Bolshevik Revolution, taking his daughter Elena with him. Some in his wife's family accuse him of abducting Elena, of taking her without the mother's consent. 
He also changed his name, so by the time he arrived in Chicago, he was no longer David or Pavel Michelson, Latvian Jew, but Dr. David Pablo Boder, scholar without frontiers. Meanwhile, his wife stayed in Latvia, held on to her name and identity, and was executed in a ghetto in 1941, just before Boder appeared in Time magazine for his study of adjectives and verbs. It's hard to resist the pattern that having betrayed <clears throat> that in part his study of the people of the Holocaust and his determination to get there and to catch the stories in their purest telling. It's hard to resist the interpretation that in part this atoned for the freedom from that kind of torment that he achieved by simply leaving. On July 29, 1946, Boder finally made it to Europe. In the end, after more than a year of writing grant proposals, he went without official funding. He had money from his daughter, donations from a few associates, and a loan from his life insurance. I should point out again just how uninterested the rest of the world was in Boder's idea. The project was a one-man effort from start to finish. He worked without translators and operated the equipment on his own, often pausing to untangle wire that bunched up like fishing line. He would show up in a safe house or refugee camp, ask for volunteers, find a quiet corner, and begin his questions. Munich, Germany, September 20, 1946. Uh, the spool is at uh, nine minutes. The interviewer is Mr. Jürgen Bestfreund, 23 years old. Also, Jürgen, wollen Sie mir sagen, wo sind Sie geboren? Jürgen Bassfreund now goes by Jack Bass. He lives in Birmingham, Alabama, where I went to talk to him about the old professor he met while waiting to leave Europe. I remember that a lady from Nuremberg, she was also public, she certainly wouldn't be alive today anymore. She told me about, about Dr. Borders said, go in there because he wants to hear stories and that. And I think that I looked for him. I mean, I knew where he was and that I introduced myself and that's how that interview took place. Were you facing I think I think that we sat across a table from each other and the recorder was uh, on the table, I believe. I remember it was a red webcore wire recorder and uh, it was some kind of a miracle in those days because I mean, that you could actually have a tape, a wire, and that would record your voice was something that I hadn't seen before. You would think that a researcher talking to refugees after the war, a psychologist of all people, would show the appropriate sensitivity. But that's not exactly the way things went. One survivor was so upset by Boder's aloofness that she still refuses to have her interview published. And as Bass remembers, Boder might as well have been asking directions. I still see him interviewing me, and he was very stern. He looked at me, and he had a very serious expression on his face. He would say to me, and what happened after you left uh, Auschwitz? And where did you end up after Auschwitz? And where did you go, and what did you have to eat? And that he, 
he he was a, a, a thorough interviewer, but he was very uh, stern, like you know. And then they cut our hair. Yeah. They uh, with a razor. With an electric razor. Yes. With a the shield. Yes. With a flat shape. Tell me, who did the shearing? They were deputies. They were men or women. Women. Yeah. Uh, your hair from the head and everything. Everything. The whole body. Yes. The whole the body. The abdominal hair. Yes. Why did they do that? I can't tell you. It was very formal, I, I think. So, Somewhat like a teacher at the final exam. And teacher, you, can, you can't look left or right. You just look at him and make sure that you don't look at anything else. But I was used to it because in Europe, all the teachers are like that. In his two months in Europe, Border went from a passing acquaintance with Nazi atrocities knowing probably as much as anyone alive. But it wasn't until the very end that cracks appeared in this customary reserve. So Harold Baz is the head librarian at the Illinois Institute of Technology and currently running a project to restore and archive Boder's work. She remembers the moment in the tapes when she heard the change, an interview in Yiddish with a Polish woman named Anna Kowitska. It was the last interview he interviewed, and the person in the story was talking about her daughter, which is a newborn, that she had to leave it in the street, in the snow, uh, for a Christian lady in Poland to pick her up so she can, she can take her to the orphanage. And we're talking about a newborn, and it was 25 degrees below. There was snow on the ground. She left the child in the street. Um, this woman had seen most of her family perish and uh, have not gotten to see her daughter after her birth. You're lighting our cigarettes. This person was sobbing uh, throughout the, the interview, and um, it just it, it seems after he listened to 109 people, it weighed very heavy on him at that point. I was able to hear the sadness, his impatience was um, was the very last story. In a way, I have had it. I have heard enough. Well, we have to conclude my automobile is waiting. That's how we miss very valuable material that I have to cancel another appointment. We spend September the 46th in the synagogue that was desecrated. 1937 or 38, and which has its holiday services for the first time today, although not yet rededicated. But we have heard from this woman is about the story, but we have heard from everybody. I'm concluding my project in Germany, and I want to thank the owner, Jack Thompson from the Chicago Tribune, Border wobbles back and forth here. On one side, a promoter scholar making his acknowledgments. On the other, an exhausted man, shaken by what he's heard. And I can 
speak. I don't record, remember the name now because I'm just in a trance after this woman's report. I'm concluding this project. The automobile is waiting. I'm going to Frankfurt. Who is going to sit in judgment over all this? And who is going to judge my work? Illinois Institute of Technology by recording. I'm leaving tonight for Paris. The project is concluded. You can read almost anything into that final, who will judge my work. The shame reporters feel when they hold the camera on someone in tears. The desire for recognition. The realization that his achievement consists of making people relive their worst moments. And the hope that documenting this tragedy might alleviate any guilt he might have felt about living in America while his relatives died at the hands of the Nazis. Boder spoke these words in English so that the woman would not understand and he never included them in the transcript. Something happened when Boder came back. His promoter's instinct failed him just when he needed it the most. He never got enough money to transcribe all his interviews. He had hoped to put them in a book, but in the end he published only eight out of the 109 and the book, I Did Not Interview the Dead, sold poorly and went out of print. He followed his daughter to the West Coast in 1952 and was offered a position as an unpaid research associate at UCLA. With the grant money running out, Boder kept transcribing the recordings on his own. I picture him alone in his office, playing and replaying passages to filter words from the noise, visited occasionally by his daughter Elena. Here he was in the New World, but immersed again in the old. After a life of moving on, moving out, moving up, Boder was back where he started. I remember the tapes uh, being in one area in this little library and uh, the late 60s or 70s even, queries came into the department asking about the tapes, and they had disappeared. They were gone. Irving Maltzman was a young psychologist at UCLA when Border first arrived, and he was in charge of the reading room of the psychology department there. I just think we, we just didn't realize the historical significance of them. Uh... In part, when he published it, it was, there was still, uh, I think, people uh, had enough of the, the terrible stories that had appeared in the newspaper finally. And, and in part, it was because uh, he was not some public celebrity. There was a lack of publicity and, and acclamation of the work at the time. And, and so it was just sitting in a little reading room in a psychology department rather than in the Smithsonian Institute or the Holocaust Museum or something. The term the Holocaust came up during the Second World Congress of Jewish Studies in 1957 in Jerusalem. 
It caught on quickly among scholars and spread to the general public by the early 60s. Before then, back in the 40s, everybody had a different name for it. The recent catastrophe, the recent Jewish catastrophe, the disaster, even the permanent pogrom. Boder died in 1961. He was 75, and if he'd lived just a few more years, he might have found an audience. In the early 60s, people began the serious gathering of recorded oral histories. As they looked around for survivors and testimonials, a set of wire spools set unnoticed, Raiders of the Lost Ark style, inside wooden crates in a place called the Jefferson Technical Complex in the Library of Congress. The spools were copies of the originals, made by Boder himself and sent to the library in the 50s. Library staffers who asked about the crates were told they contained recordings of, quote, people who had psychological problems as a result of being displaced during the war. It wasn't until the mid-1990s that anyone figured out what the recordings were. A third of Boder's interviews have still never been transcribed. Carmarziali in Chicago. If you want to hear David Boder's recordings or read transcripts, there's a link to the official IIT website, Voices of the Holocaust, from the This American Life website, www.thisamericanlife.org. Shouldn't he grin high above this dreary 20th century din? In this strange illusion, chaos and confusion, people seem to lose their way. What is there to strive for, love or keep alive for? Say, hey, hey, call it a day. Getting me down, down Escape these weary 20th century blues Coming up, if your mom bites you in the tuchus, what's the name for that? Is that love? What if she breaks a plate over your head? Love? Is that love? Answers in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, before it had a name, stories of things in that delicate moment before we know exactly what they are and how those things change once we pin a name onto them. Things like, for example, Axis of Evil, a perfect example. Sure, North Korea, Iraq, and Iran, they were bad before we pinned the name Axis of Evil onto those countries. But the name changed things. Changing's for them. It turns out that, that part of what made North Korea so angry lately is being included on that list, is being called evil. Names matter. Well, we've arrived at Act 2 of our program. Act 2 is about that moment when we suddenly learn the name of something that has, up until that point, remained unnamed for us. When the name penetrates into us, the person or the place or the thing has penetrated into us too, I think. And if that doesn't seem true to you, Heather O'Neill provides these real-life case studies. I didn't know who Paul Rayon was until he crashed on his motor scooter in front of the school, and he became the first person we ever saw killed. I'd never heard of Sunny Teasdale until Mary Lou showed me the hickeys on her neck. I thought this guy was just a goon until I heard him singing Panis Angelicus with a cigarette in his mouth. Then I knew his name was Johnny Delorio for the rest of my life. I didn't know Casper James until my uncle was buried at his parents' funeral parlor. Hi, he said in the lobby. We go to school together. Linda Hall was just a girl with a missing finger until she taught me all the words to a Sly in the Family Stone song at the swimming pool. He was from Africa, and he was cute. I wrote Chimemwe down on a piece of paper so that I could practice it and stop asking him what his name was. He said his mother was Suzanne from the Leonard Cohen song, but I could never remember his name. That's Quincy, they said, pointing to the boy on the high diving board who was afraid to jump and everyone yelled in unison, Jump! 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 Natasha wasn't really Natasha until she told me that her father hadn't been home for three days and she slept on the balcony when it was warm. The teacher held up the math test that said Vladimir at the top of the page. In all the slots for answers, he had drawn pictures of guns. I looked at Vladimir sitting way in the corner. I didn't even think of him as having a name. I never knew Zero's real name. He sold heroin on Madison Avenue. Everyone started calling him Zero because just saying his real name would supposedly bring you bad luck. The neighborhood took away his name so they could feel a little more safe. My dad could never remember names, so every actor he didn't like on television he called a child molester or a degenerate. I would say, the show with the Italian pedophile is coming on, and he would hurry to the living room. My dad said he never paid for anything smaller than his fist. He used to tuck a gun in his boxer shorts when he took out the garbage because he said there could be rats out there. He got a license so that he could sell flowers on the corner downtown. The name on the license said Leonard O'Neill. Who the hell is that, I thought. Everybody I ever met called my dad Buddy. 
My dad called me Dumbo because he said I had big ears. My mother called me Sputnik because my eyes were so big. My dad named me Heather after a woman who taught him to read after he dropped out of school when he was in grade three. So that was my first name, and for a long time my middle name was Who. I had countless last names like Heather Who used to go out with Derek, Heather Who kissed Marco at the dance, Heather Who told Jeremy that her name was Butterfly, Heather Who had her shoes stolen in the park. Heather, who wears that ugly blue ski jacket. Heather, who has a sister in juvie. Heather, who has a dad who used to rob banks. Heather, who thinks she's better than everyone because she says she was reincarnated. When you get your name, you are just a little baby and have no say about the matter. Your parents could get your name from anywhere. You could have a name that comes from an ugly relative or out of the Bible. It could be something they heard shouted out at the swimming pool. It could be the Spanish name for bird, a strange name, a name your parents spelled wrong and no one could ever say right. Still, when people learn your name, they think they know all about you. When my uncle sent me a pair of running shoes from Virginia, I wrote my name on the sides of both sneakers, so no one could steal them from my locker. Hi, Heather, the man across from me in the bus said. It shocked me how he said, Hi, Heather, like he knew me all his life. I'd seen him around chasing pigeons and trying to pour beer on little kids in the park. I wanted to reach across the bus aisle and punch him in the face for knowing my name. Heather Aneo is the author of Two Eyes Are You Sleeping, a book of poetry. What's my name? Three, a bad day for plates. Laura Tanguso has this story about how things changed in her life and in her whole family's life, actually, when events in their past that they interpreted one way suddenly got a different name. All my life, I thought my mother was difficult and crazy. My brother and sisters did too. That's how we thought of her for decades until recently when we learned that there was a very different explanation for why she acted the way she did. We all have memories of her craziness. Here are my sisters Leslie and Liz and my brother John. I think I might have been in kindergarten. I went in the kitchen, she'd broken all the dishes, just broken things everywhere. She was just breaking them. She was really exhausted. She picked up a jar of relish and she turned around and just whipped it pitched it at the wall and it smashed on the wall and I just remember the, the relish dripping down the wall and she was sort of just doing her own thing she was in her own little world I remember being older in high school and being at mom's and she lost her comb 
and she just was crying and angry and and I remember really consoling her and saying mom you know it's a comb here it's right here and I felt so bad mom went into a tirade about something and took a plate a full-size dinner plate and whacked me in, on the top of the head and yeah I quickly left the house and I remember sitting on a stone wall um, you know, pretty upset and, and stunned by what had happened. And I kind of felt this warm sensation on the back of my neck, and I reached back with my hand, and I was actually bleeding um, from my skull. I mean, it wasn't serious that it required stitches or anything, but Mom did draw blood, as they say. What made my mother confusing, though, was that she had another side of her. She was smart, she was adventurous. She took us to the original production of Hair in London. When I was 13 years old, she told me to read the autobiography of Malcolm X. It's a book I still have. She had friends who thought she was a real character and fun, and even some of our friends thought she was cool. But for us, things always felt precarious, on the brink. She was unpredictable, she could be scary, and we all tried in our own ways to protect ourselves and make things normal. Being the oldest, I would try to keep the house in order, thinking somehow that would keep my mother in order. My sisters spent as much time as they could out of the house. Leslie once asked my parents if she could live with another family. I remember how when my sister Liz was young, when she got upset, she'd hold her breath until she passed out. I always figured this was her own special way of escaping. By the time we were adults, we'd all decided to keep our distance from her. None of us lived far away, but we'd easily go three, four months, or much longer, without seeing her. When we did see her, it was usually because we initiated it, not her. It was as if it just never occurred to her to make connections with her family. I remember once I was babysitting my niece and nephew, and I took them to pick up my mother so we could all do something together. When my mother got in the car, my nephew, who was four at the time, looked at me and asked, Who's she? It was a family joke about my mother, that if she was this bad now, just wait till she got old. And in fact, when she reached her 70s and her health began to decline, she became a kind of nightmare. She'd become severely arthritic and frail, but lied about seeing doctors and resented our efforts to assist her. To make things worse, she also started losing her memory. By the time she'd had a second hip surgery, she had become so confused and agitated, she slugged a nurse. We weren't that shocked, but the hospital took it seriously, and she was sent to a psych unit. The doctors there did some routine CAT scans. What we were then told was so amazing, it took months to fully absorb. On New Year's Eve of 1999, six months after hearing that report, I began recording my and my siblings' reactions. When the doctors heard our descriptions of her behavior combined with what they saw on her scans, they said that it was very possible that she has had some brain damage most of her life. And I think that for me, and I think, I don't know, but I think maybe too for my sisters and brothers, that was just one of the most sort of stunning moments in all of this for me because 
all my life, I just thought that's, you know, my mother was just difficult. That's the way she was. I just thought she was you know, just that way. But when, when it was, when I heard it from someone else and when they said that, it, you know, that, that they had even physical evidence of it, it just changed, you know, it just changed things in an instant. The CAT scan showed that my mother has frontal lobe syndrome, which is a shrinkage of the frontal lobe of the brain. She may have been born with it, or it may have been the result of some childhood illness or accident. In any event, for as long as we've known her, she's had it. Just with that diagnosis, there's a sense of relief because it's no longer in unknown. Prior to that, I think that I wrote Mum off as being a very malicious person and you know I just used to think that there was a nasty side of her personality that she was in control of and I guess that was what I learned is that the 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 bad side of her personality was not necessarily something that she was in control of It was an enormous thing to take in. She'd always been a mystery that we never imagined we'd understand. She'd done so many things that were confusing and scary. She'd blow up at such small things, like when my brother put too much soap in the sink. My mother got so enraged, she put him in his room, said he was sick, and threatened to send him to an institution. Suddenly, it didn't seem all her fault. My mother was put on medications, which slowly began to help her. She stopped being antagonistic, she showed appreciation for us and the staff, and she acted gracious in ways I had never seen before. After a month and a half in the psych hospital, she was moved into a nursing home. But by then, she was experiencing serious memory loss, and I felt like I was both gaining and losing a mother at the same time. birthday this weekend. It's my birthday? Yep. March 5th. Good Lord, I forgot all about it. Sunday. Sunday, huh? And how old am I going to be on Sunday? Let's see. <laughs> Oy. Something I'd rather not think about. <laughs> <laughs> You can hear that my mother is losing her memory, but when I listen to this conversation, what strikes me most is the ease in our voices, how normal we sound, the way my mother laughs at herself. I mean, Mom, you know, hugged me three times today, you know, kissed me goodbye twice, you know, thanked me so very much for what a, you know, a great day. Um, and I don't remember Mom ever um, saying that stuff, you know. kind of got this like six to eight week window of mom being like Miss Wonderful 
you know, I mean, she just couldn't have been any more upbeat or radiant and fun to be around and laughing and just looking so much better and, and you know, having good color in her skin. She put on weight. I mean, I hadn't seen them wear makeup in a bazillion years, fixing her hair. And um, it was like, just really sad because I'm sort of thinking, wow, you know, like, what would life have been if mom had been um, this person when I was growing up? <laughs> it's made us all wonder, what would she have been like? Maybe she would have stayed married to my father. Maybe she would have published one of the books she wrote instead of destroying everyone. And maybe it wouldn't be so remarkable to us now when she behaves in normal ways. It's also hard not to wonder about how we would have been different. Would there be more grandchildren? Would one of us be a published novelist? Would we be happier? But of course, these are impossible questions. Mom did a lot of things that affected my childhood. And um, I'll never forgive her. Of all my siblings, my sister Leslie may have had the most difficult relationship with my mother. Leslie is the youngest and was the only one who ever lived alone with her. There was no one else around to cushion her from my mother's craziness. And as soon as she finished high school, Leslie joined the Army to get herself away. It was very stressful, very confusing for me to go through a lot of change that she put me through. And um, I understand that she was probably sick at the time, but um, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I just haven't worked through it enough. She asked me once how my childhood was. Did you have a happy childhood was how she phrased it. We were just out and we were at a restaurant eating and we were just having conversation about nothing of any great importance. You know, just sort of a small talk, I guess. And she just came out with this question. Maybe she was lucid at that moment and she just needed to know. And I told her I did. The other night, I went to visit my mother at the nursing home. As we were leaving her floor to go out to dinner, my mother wanted to stop by the activities room to say goodbye to some friends. A man named Patrick, who's in a wheelchair and can't speak very well, called out in his slow voice, Hello, Dorothy. My mother looked directly at him and in a loud, stern voice said, And you, get out of that chair and take a walk for heaven's sake. For an instant, I cringed, flashing back to the countless times my mother was inappropriate in public. But then Patrick started laughing and my mother started laughing. And as often happens now, I was reminded how much has changed. Laura Tanguso is a teacher and visual artist in Boston. 
This is her first story for the radio. What's a synonym? What's an antonym? What's a homonym? What's a plural? What's the good word? That's the name of this song. Learn the good words, not the words that are wrong. With the good start, you should start to pass to the head of the class. Use a good word, whether spoken or sung. Keep a good word on the tip of your tongue to be clever. Endeavor to say a bright word, a light word, an absolutely right word, a good word. Act four, you call that love? Consider, please, the word love. Love between mothers and children. Love between spouses. Once the word is applied to a feeling, is it possible that we are not all referring to the same thing? Jonathan Goldstein has some thoughts about that question. If there was no such word as love, our vocabulary would be richer, and we'd have to struggle harder to find the right words. Everyone would be so long-winded and Shakespearean in their range of emotional expression. The word love came along and wiped out all sorts of terms in a semantical bloodbath. Without the word love, people would speak in terms of sensations, like the sensation of standing waist-deep in a tub of warm plum sauce, or the sensation of being tickled on the back of the knees. Some would say they felt like they had just swallowed a honey-soaked boxing glove, and others might say that they were feeling like their guts had been yanked out and spread across the kitchen floor. Without the word love, you would get wedding invitations that would say things like, on July the 15th, join us at the Five Holy Martyrs Church of Worship to help celebrate Barry Lazinski's feeling of aimless goodwill that he's decided to direct onto Robin Krupka, who's receptive to the idea of being with a man she's fairly certain will never inflict hurt on her. Sometimes we call something love because we don't know what else to call it. When I first started dating Holly, there was one night where I was double-riding her back home from downtown on my bike, and she kissed my neck and rubbed my back through my t-shirt. We were going uphill, and she knew I could use all the encouragement I could get. We had spent the evening with some friends we didn't especially like, just because we didn't have the heart to say no to them. We should go out more often, she said from behind me. The way I hate everybody makes me love you more. Was that a moment of love? or merely an instance of lack of hate. With Christiane, I thought I couldn't be in love, because her knees were too big. They were the size of grapefruits, and I could not see myself being in love with a woman whose knees were that big. They were ludicrous, really. My thinking was that it was a good thing they were so ludicrous, because they kept me firmly anchored. If I thought for even a second that I might be falling in love, all I had to do was think of those big fat knees of hers, and then, one day, I found myself kissing them. I had to leap over a great inner hurdle to get to that, but it wasn't love that was on the other side. It was just self-congratulatory pats on my own back over how I could move beyond pettiness like that. When I was 16, there was a summer I spent in Wildwood, New Jersey, where one night, while walking down the boardwalk feeling lonely and depressed, a girl a few years older than me came spinning down the boardwalk, her arms spread out. She came right towards me, and then, when we were face to face, she kissed me, just like that, because she was drunk or stoned, but she had kissed me. For the rest of the summer, I couldn't pass a woman on the boardwalk without thinking that we should somehow be meeting in a kiss. 
that that's how life should really be. In that moment, where our lips touched, the way it suddenly brought into alignment the private unspeakable hopefulness in the heart with the uncontrollableness of the outside world, it felt like, as surely as anything else I've ever experienced, a moment of love. I say this as an adult who has had serious relationships since, and I can't think of another word but love to describe what I felt that day on the boardwalk. And that was it. She just walked on. When I was a little kid, my mother's favorite thing was to crane her head through a door frame or around a corner and bite me or my sister on the ass while exclaiming, Boy, is this a tuchus. I spent much of my childhood walking around our house always on my guard, always feeling like she could strike at any moment. She was never really any good with words, so this was sort of her version of a love sonnet. At least that's how I've chosen to see it. You could also say it was filthy and damaging. But if you want to see something as love, or even need to see it as love, and you call it love, it feels a lot more like love. Jonathan Goldstein is one of the producers of our program and author of the great novel, Lenny Bruce is Dead. I something you As the nights get older I something you As if you couldn't see Well, our program was produced today by Alex Bloomberg and myself with Wendy Dore, Jonathan Goldstein, and Starley Kine. Senior producer, Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Mr. Todd Bachman and Diane Cook. Music help today from Mr. John Connors. Special thanks today to Mr. Josh Rogers of New Hampshire Public Radio, to Jerome McDonald and Andrea Wenzel of WBEZ's Worldview for ongoing advice, and to Jonathan Dyer at The World. If you'd like to buy a cassette of this or any of our programs, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago. Look it up in the book or call 312-948-4680 or visit our website where you can buy tapes or actually you can just listen to our programs for free online, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show comes from the Albert A. List Foundation and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. Whenever I pass Tori in the hallway, he turns and whistles, and he says, Boy, is this a tuchus. Sure he does. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. In the twilight of this world, you are my Dutch, Australian, Hungarian, Jewish girl. I something you, you want not me. I something you, you something me. PRI Public Radio International.